Hello, I'm Scott Deaver, Chief Technical Officer of Certitude Digital, the maker of Amulet, Gnomes, and Hackless Harbor Cybersecurity Software and Services. Today, I am your host for our educational podcast entitled Certitude Digital Cybersecurity and Digital Identity Education Series, Business Model and Team 1, accompanying video number 6, originally produced September 7th of 2020. This is the sixth video in our Cybersecurity and Identity Education Series, featuring the answers to questions 16 through 18. The video and transcript companions to this podcast can be found on our website at www.certitudedigital.com in the videos page under the FAQ slash patents slash use cases slash videos menu of the main menu bar. I hope you find the following informative and helpful. Now, on to our first question for this segment. This segues nicely into your business model. You have an interesting take on an approach I've not seen before. Can you take a few moments to tell us about it? We'll leave the open source possibilities off to the side for the moment, but we are diligently exploring in that area. I never intended, and do not intend even now, to be the CEO of Certitude Digital. My strengths are in technology, not in business. But I knew even in the early going that what we were doing had the real potential to become a very big deal, and that we were going to have to engage people with genuine expertise in scaling our startup into a decacorp. That's a term I was not familiar with, but one that a couple of heavyweight business types who know something about what we are doing have used to describe where they see our potential. For newbies like me out there, that's apparently, you know, corn times 10. To attract and engage people on the business side of the house with that expertise and level of previous success meant that I was going to have to learn at least the basics necessary to communicate with them. As a point of full disclosure, We haven't yet found anyone anywhere near that guy or girl that we are looking for, though we have certainly slogged through our fair share of wannabes and pretenders. That's one of the serious minefields that startups have to navigate here in Southern California that no one ever warns you about. So I am very much still in learning mode as I continue to look for the right person. Let me plug those efforts here a little. I say that we will gladly accept and diligently pursue any sincere resumes or inquiries sent our way. We do welcome diversity in all forms and encourage applicants who feel like they have the requisite background, drive, skills, and experience to apply. We are not kidding when we say it is our full intention that the CEO who gets us there becomes the most respected and rewarded person in that position in the United States. Having said that, let me also say this is not an on-the-job training situation, it's not part-time, and requires extraordinary intelligence, dedication, talent, bona fides, vision, sacrifice, work ethic, and of course, self-confidence. We are fond of using Elon Musk as our our role model and disregarding his gender and cultural attributes. He does embody the attitude and approach we are looking for. And 30 Digital's assault on the cybersecurity problem domain is very much at the same level of scale as was the electric car at the time he created Tesla, or as is the Hyperloop or SpaceX. I apologize for the digression. Back to the subject. Obviously, I'm going to be running way long for this segment. So, so that I could have that conversation with an Elon Musk type, wondering if I ever actually ran into him or her, and not come away from it looking really stupid, I spent a number of years bringing myself up to speed on business matters in parallel with development tasks. The culmination of all of that is represented by an article I wrote in March 2017 entitled Certitude Digital's Business Model Explainer that appears on the article's webpage on our CertitudeDigital.com 
website. At the time, I was very active on LinkedIn, and the article was posted there. I circulated links to it among several thousand connections I had who were business savvy. My thinking was that I'd get back some critiques and use those to tweak the article and my understanding of digital business. Instead, I got rave reviews and a really enthusiastic response. So I left the article exactly the way it was and predicated Certitude Digital's business model upon its assumptions. Let me stress here and now that while I think the direction we are headed in is the right one for now, and we've done a good job pre-COVID of laying out and following a strategy, the business model we will ultimately follow will be that designed by whomever takes over the reins of our business framework. Obviously, we do hope that person will embed a significant portion of our work into their strategies, but as long as we stay clearly on the high road as a business entity, we are always open to better ideas. That having been said, the current plan is based on two core revenue model assumptions around our amulet technologies that are completely new to cybersecurity. Though the second is similar in some ways to click the revenue generation Google has made famous in general software web services and online products. We never do anything without a backup plan. So those two novel revenue assumptions are backstopped by traditional revenue streams generated by traditional software and services, product sales, and subscriptions. Those also include service and maintenance agreements, white label rebrands, API and SDK technology licensing, server and hosting platform leasing, and training, documentation, as well as certification and paid support. You'll want to note that products and services revenue around our GNOME's identity authentication, hackless hardware isolation, and Kirchhoff's complement and ciphering technologies are all based on those more traditional business models. The first of the two revenue assumptions that are new to cybersecurity is the idea that the person or entity receiving the value should be the one paying for it, and they should pay the least amount reasonably possible. I know that it is hard to believe that after 50 years this would be a new revelation in cybersecurity, but it has never existed before. Consider virus scanners. Virus scanners actually do not protect you as a person from anything. That virus doesn't know you. It's blind to what you have on the device, and it has no way to take something it found interesting, even if it could find it. No, viruses, as opposed to worms or bots, which do more creative things, attack the operating system primarily as harassment. And they attack it because the entity who provided you that operating system did such a lousy job writing it. Looking at you, Microsoft. Now, you paid dearly for that operating system. You may not have paid for it directly, but typically you were charged for it as included in the price when you bought your computer. So you essentially bought a fake Rolex off a street corner bum, and now you must pay the bum's buddy to hold an umbrella over the original bum so that bum doesn't get the sniffles in the raid, else he won't be able to keep rewinding your watch so it stays running. As stupid as all that sounds, People do really dumb things when they perceive they do not have any other choice. And the virus scanner vendors make sure you aren't given any other visible options. The only reason you pay that subscription is because of the indirect threat to your use of the computer when the virus shuts down the operating system. But your purchase experience is nothing like a happily paying for value received proposition. The same is true of file server protections. The person who really needs and deserves the protections is the owner, creator, or content provider of the valuable information in the individual files or data on that server. But unless you happen to be the owner of the company, that 20-something just out of community college IT guy 
doesn't know you or anything about the special needs of your file. He just slaps the same one-size-fits-all technology a salesman sold them when you weren't in the room around your files along with every other file and throws it all in a big pile. A pile so big, hackers can easily find it. And when they do, they break into it and take everything, including your files and data. But even though you paid in some form, directly or indirectly, to have your file stored on that server, does the file server protection you also pay for do anything for you? Of course not. Here are some stunning statistics about the Equifax hack of March 2017. 143 million people, 40% of the population, was affected. Not a single one of those people was any less a victim today, three and a half years later, than they were then. Not a single thing was ever done to fix the damage that occurred. Equifax has paid out only $417 million in claims. $417 million divided by $143 million is $2.92 per victim. Yes, you heard that right. The average victim who had their social security number and financial accounts data stolen received on average $2.92 from Equifax. To get their $2.92, they had to fill out several forms in different passes exactly right and then wait an average of two years and seven months each. Two years and seven months wait for $2.92 for each victim. Oh, and just so you know, Equifax's reported revenue in that two years and seven months was $9.18 billion. So once again, nothing about cybersecurity related to Equifax could be construed as happily paying for value received proposition for any content provider where your personal data is the content and you are the provider. So back to our first revenue principle, that the person or entity receiving the value of a cybersecurity process or service should be the one paying for it, and they should pay the least amount reasonably possible. Incidentally, by value, we are including complete control of the cybersecurity process by the purchaser. In our world, the benefactor of cybersecurity should not be the operating system or the file server. It should, of course, be the owner, creator, or provider of the valuable data that is being protected. Duh. The authorized intended consumer of the data should not have to pay for its protections any more than the recipient of a package from Amazon should have to pay for the product if the product happens to arrive damaged. So the content provider pays to protect his or her stuff. Well, when we say pay, we do not mean through the nose. We mean one ten thousandth of a penny, or at worst, one one thousandth of a red cent for each item transaction you protect. And if the protections you use for one transaction are suitable for something else later, feel free to reuse the same protection at no additional charge. We call them protection amulets, and you can reuse them, combine them together to form more complete protections, or use one to protect many things of the same time. The costs of amulet security are meant to be so trivial that even in the aggregate, you don't have to think about them. That is by design, much like you don't think about the cost of the air filter on your furnace or air conditioner that protects the air you breathe inside your home. This leads to the second revenue stream assumption. The security cost becomes so trivial that it should be commoditized like grains of salt to flavor food, sprinkled liberally anywhere they are needed. Those who desire or need less security are welcome to use it sparingly, and those who need more aren't going to break the bank applying it generously. Obviously, this is an entirely opposite approach from cybersecurity companies you know who want you to buy their all-encompassing, one-size-fits-all package as a fixed-price subscription for a healthy chunk of change. What the content provider purchases from us is the right to create brand new amulets, something they will want to do regularly. It is true that they can reuse an amulet, but amulets are dynamic. 
So if they change the security copy settings of one, it changes the settings for all of the copies of that amulet already in the field. Usually it's better to leave the older ones as they are and just create a new one, which you can copy from an older amulet settings. When they buy a bundle of amulet creation rights from us, they get a little digital folder that monitors and automatically manages the counts and uses of amulets. When the number of amulets they can create begins to get low, they can buy a bundle of new amulet creation rights from us online. Say the rights to create 50,000 amulets cost $5 to replenish their stock. Trivial. The magic here is something Google realized with their advertising click-through model years ago. If a tiny price is painlessly paid by those who benefit the most using your service, they will use it voraciously and the math quickly becomes your dearest friend. I've quoted the specific figures before elsewhere, but I'll repeat them here. Estimates say there are an average of 8 trillion incremental digital transactions across the world each and every day. At one ten thousandth of a penny to protect each, that is $8 million a day, or $2.92 billion per year. At one one thousandth of a penny per molecular transaction, that's $80 million a day, or $29.2 billion a year. There is an order of magnitude latitude for the marketing and business walks to experiment and find that sweet spot in the pricing that best serves our needs and our customers. Maybe for $5, the current content provider is happy with the rights to create 5,000 amulets rather than 50,000. But this model has the right flexibility, yet addresses the need efficiently and directly for us and for them. But certainly, we have clearly shown that once you take the corruption and crooks out of the cybersecurity equation, there's a whole lot of room left there for consumers to save a ton of money while vendors make a handsome but fair profit. You've indicated several times that you really don't want to build up thousands of products and services under the Zero Two Digital name, but we prefer to white label these to strategic partners. I guess these would come as add-ons and improvements to their existing presence in each of the vertical markets you want to service. Can you elaborate how that would work? Our products and services can solve so many problems in the world today and can be integrated into virtually any other products or service you can think of. It serves the economy, it serves the consumer, it serves business, and it serves us to get our technologies distributed into the world at large as painlessly and as quickly as possible. Listen, yes, it's a business, but we are doing this to help people. I understand the politics of our country are polarized at the moment, but you can't help people without competing with them. And you can make a nice living for yourself doing it. It would make no sense at all to us as a startup to try to build and brand a bunch of new products and services when there are all these perfectly good things already out there, well-liked and well-supported, and that only need the security features we can offer. Obviously, we want to get rid of the products that are nothing more than scams and frauds, but that's a relatively small number of the products and services out there. It is kind of amazing to me how easy it is to integrate our stuff sometimes. For example, for any application that will accept a file name in a command line, you can integrate an amulet protected file read into that application with a one-line plain text script. True story, we do it with Notepad, Word, Excel, Audacity, any utility like that, all the time, just to freak people out after they've seen how hard it is to hack just one of our amulet protected files. We can't make this strange, I can't believe you can do that. Look, and it's really fun to see. And of course, the Amulet Cloak utility can Amulet protect the output files from any application, independently of that application. 
So using our technologies is a heck of a lot easier than people tend to think they would be at first. That's just because our way of thinking is new to them. Once they try it and get used to it, they tend to really love it and it just comes naturally. But in any case, we will provide the command line utilities, file wrappers, and helper utilities that can be wrapped around or added to many existing applications and services without even needing any help from the application vendor. We can also work with strategic partners and vendors to add our capabilities to our existing products or even build new products by licensing our applications programming interfaces or APIs and software development kits or SDKs so they can easily add any requisite coding. We will also build brand new products such as our annual sorcery product for securitizing GitHub repositories from Microsoft and other threats as prototypes demonstrate how a novel approach can work to solve a problem and then invite partners to white label their own versions of these. We may do the same with our unique new spins on old school things such as email clients. We may offer re-engineered prototypes of solutions that compete with known offenders of data rights, like Facebook. We already have that in our Parcel Depot product, which a strategic partner with significant resources could bid on to take as their own under license and hopefully run those other players off the field. We would derive profits from our partner relationships beyond the licensing of tools alone by providing developer training, programmer utilities, documentation, support, and developer testing and certification services. We know a little bit about you. Could you introduce us to other members of your team and the organization's history? With COVID-19 and all that it has impacted, not only with us, but even more so with our alliances and fundraising, we're down to the bare nubs at the moment as far as our personnel. We started out 12 years ago as a company called Org Optics and have had as many as 16 people working for us at one time. Like many pre-money startups, we have shrunk and grown throughout the years. In March of this year, just prior to the impact of the virus being felt here, and as a result losing the strategic partnership we had invested in and were relying upon, we were in the beginnings of a major growth spurt. We were right at the cusp of taking on the recruiting, selection, and hiring of a world-class CEO and his team as a standalone, all-hands-on-deck task and had just gotten things packaged up nicely so that ideally the right person could bring in their own business team they were comfortable working with and could hit the ground running while we raised funding to extend the technical capabilities we have and have access to. But to answer the first part of your question, our staff today consists primarily of myself and James Cardle, our longtime patent attorney who has gone to extreme lengths to provide us top-tier intellectual property services since 2008, even in the face of his own personal challenges. James was a tenured engineering professor before becoming a patent attorney, which he has done for the past few decades, even as he is still registered as an engineer in California. We recently lost the services, hopefully temporarily, of our longtime COO and my right hand, Scott Orman. We simply haven't been able to attain the funding to pay salary. And after more than three years under those conditions, Scott had to find the means to pay his family's bills. Scott was a longtime project manager with Qualcomm here in San Diego before that and was adept at picking up all of the tasks anyone else could not do, including business management, short explainer videos, and building our website. In fall of 2019, we engaged the Canadian software technology firm Cypher.co to form a joint venture called Synapsis.co. Cypher.co was to provide the capital raise, business management, and outsourced development staff from Bulgaria, while we provided stateside product development technology licenses of our 
tech, uh, intellectual property and technical direction. Servitude Digital committed fully to the partnership, letting all initiatives language to support bringing their staff up to speed on our technologies and bending our goals to fit their agenda. Unfortunately, with COVID-19 and challenges they were having internally, managing their financial situation or retaining staff, Cypher.co was not able to meet their obligations or expectations under our agreement, and we mutually agreed to terminate the Synapsis.co venture in June. Despite these headwinds maintaining our team, we have continued to make impressive progress. In May, we filed another patent application, and in June, our sixth utility patent issued from the U.S. Patent Office. We've engaged a refactor of our code base that will make it easier to generate future products and train technical staff, and have vastly increased our video library and documentation on our website. We have evolved a plan to raise funding through WeFunder and augment our staff using the proceeds, and look forward to returning to what was originally our next step, which is our campaign to seek out extraordinary contributors on the business side of the house to match our technical expertise, onward and upward.